As long as it doesn't go above 30, I, I don't really exist above 30. I have to kind of crawl under a hedge. <laughs> you have hedges, so... Yeah. listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are, of course, listening to I Might Be Wrong, and I'm here with Henry, as I always am. Hello, hello, hello. I was going to just carry on with your um, troubling of everything. <laughs> um, how are you doing, Rich? I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, was in a bit of a kind of low moment earlier today not like low moment but just like low energy and i was i think you were the same was sort of like are we gonna do this and now we're now we're feeling great so don't know what happened but we both have had something spiked in our food or drink or something well i was gonna say the the, the magical qualities of waitrose's orange squash seems to be hitting the <laughs> hitting the spot i'm not quite sure what they put in there but um yeah it's doing the job right now nice that's always good so, yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, this time it's your choice, and uh, I think as a departure from the norm, we've not only veered away from uncool, but we've veered into one of the biggest albums and bands of the last thirty years. I'd say in the kind of alternative scene. Am I right? Absolutely. Although, when you say veered away from uncool, this is probably a controversial question for this particular band because the album that we're going to talk about today was unquestionably an immensely cool album for an immensely cool band at that moment in time i'm not convinced that they've got quite that same cool reputation anymore well who are are we talking about rich we are talking about the red hot chili peppers and of course the album is blood sugar sex magic yeah i think you're right to say of course i think that is the um the album which um well it's definitely their coolest album. Well, it's, for me, a happy crossover of what we normally do in this podcast, which is to pick a, a band's best album or to pick a band's album that we have the most affinity with, usually because it's the first thing we've heard from that band. And for me, this is both. Yeah, I would I would agree just. I think there are a lot of very good songs on, say, Californication, which is a, another one which is in my kind of back pocket. But I, I would agree with you. I think this is the one I was introduced to this and it knocked my socks off when it was first released. We're going to get into a bit of personally why I think this is their best album. But let's talk Red Hot Chili Peppers, the band, to start with. So the band consists, and I say consists because it's sort of been a bit fluid over the years, the band that people think of as the Red Hot Chili Peppers is Anthony Kiedis, vocalist and lyric writer. Guitarist John Frusciante. Bassist is Flea. And their drummer is Chad Smith. Now, that's not the original formation. They originally formed in 1984 with guitarist Hillel Slovak and drummer Jack Irons, who were school friends. But sadly, Slovak died of a drug overdose in 1988. And that's the point when Jack Irons also left the band because he was just deeply depressed after the death of one of his best mates. And that's the point where Chad Smith and Frusciante both came in. Yeah, I think Irons left and um, joined Pearl Jam, as you do. Well, not immediately, but yes, he was... Well, that's an interesting one as well. So he joined Pearl Jam about three or four years after they'd formed. 
but he was the reason why Vedder joined because he's the guy that handed the demo tape to Pearl Jam. I didn't know that bit. Oh, what a nugget. <laughs> yeah. So they recorded these sessions that the guitarist, drummer, bassist had recorded sessions and they were looking for someone to write vocals for Pearl Jam and to sing on the album. And so they just gave out these demo tapes to a bunch of their mates and he happened to be one of them, handed it off to Eddie Vedder who went surfing, came back and wrote the lyrics for 10 sent them back and they went oh this is this is our guy now apparently he was originally invited to be part of that proper formation of Pearl Jam and declined because he had other commitments but yeah he then joined I think three years later and has been a consistent member of Pearl Jam ever since but I digress because I like that story. Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned you also mentioned um, Hillel Slovak, who, who died from, from the heroin overdose. That wasn't a an anomaly with the Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Heroin was a big part of their early career. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Big issues with drug abuse throughout the eighties and nineties. Uh, we'll come on to some of that. But Kaidis had been sober for a couple of years at the point when they recorded Blood Sugar Sex Magic, but a number of the other band members were still very heavily involved in taking drugs and partying um, at that point. But yeah, Frusciante also had a bit of a breakdown after they'd released Blood Sugar Sex Magic and became huge. He actually left the band mid-tour because he just felt that the stresses of being part of that level of fame, just he, he couldn't give them what they needed and so they then had a bunch of different guitarists rotate in and out they had james addiction guitarist dave navarro in the band for a little while he was there for one album i think and then was booted out for being a dick by all accounts (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so frusciante's come back in again i think he came in for the period of californication through to stadium arcadium and then left the band again and has i think rejoined in the last couple of years so yeah another one that's sort of come and gone but he's he's an immensely talented musician and guitarist but has also had i mean he after leaving the band the first time had a massive heroin addiction problem long struggle with with drug addiction before he was able to kind of get that under control and and eventually rejoin the band it's not it's not the reason why he left and rejoined but it's certainly a part of his story as well yeah, so there's there's all sorts of interesting backstories floating around in their early life. Where, where did you um, did you bump into them? Was it was it around the 1991 when Blood Sugar Sex Magic was released? It would have been a couple of years later. Um, our friend Terry, who did the music for the podcast, he was a source of a number of alternative bands in in my kind of early teen years. So along with Prodigy. This was an album that he lent me on a bootleg cassette because I'd never heard anything like this before. Uh, and it was incredible, uh, both musically and lyrically. The the funk punk guitar, the bass playing, the energy and creativity that you got with this album was sort of unlike a lot of other stuff that I'd ever heard before. Like purely the the, the drive and emotion that you're getting with this album. And also lyrically, I mean, it's it's broad ranging and and deals with a lot of pretty deep stuff both political drug abuse and in a lot of places it's overtly sexual i mean it's not like the little hints that you'd get in british music i mean he talks about his his dick getting hardened and stuff like this like outright (laughs) not not hinting at it not kind of alluding to this stuff just just pure outright 
sexual content in the lyrics, which when you're in your early teens is sort of intriguing. <laughs> so at school, this was a massive album. If you went to a house party, someone would put this album on. You'd recognise it. I mean, the album cover is so iconic. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, the white, the black, the red. Do you know who's involved in that? Um, I, I don't know. Is it, is it the band's own creation? I, I don't know. Have you heard of film director Gus Van Sant? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, is that his? it's his design. Oh, cool. Yeah, he actually was involved in some of the uh, videos for some of this this album's singles. Yeah, oh, that's neat. It's so, it's a brilliant image. Um, and mm-hmm. you know... Very iconic. You, you know who you've got when, when that's sat on the, um, next to the CD player. Um, but yeah, for at school, this album was played all the time. Mm-hmm. Everyone learned songs from this album on the guitar because that was the cool thing to play it was they were just yep. huge yep i could play under the bridge yeah I, they were bigger than they were probably the the biggest band like because they didn't just capture the kind of grunge crowd mm-hmm. their appeal was broader than that it, it seemed to capture people in the kind of poppy funky crowd as well well that was that was the interesting moment for them and for this album was that it it arrived the same month as screamadelica and it arrived the same month as Nirvana's Nevermind. The same day, I think. So there's this big cultural shift and massive albums that have come out at the same time. And and they're just as big. This album is just as big as Nevermind in terms of the breadth of appeal and the importance to rock music. Yeah, I mean, imagine that. You Literally, you go down to the shops on a, on a Saturday morning and this album and Nevermind both appear as new albums on that one day. It was like... It was September 24th, and those two albums just appear. It's like, how cool is that? Could you imagine if you were that kid who went out and bought those two albums on that morning? Amazing. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I wonder which one I'll listen to when I get home. I don't know if <laughs> yeah. I like either of them, really. Amazing. Spoil for choice. Absolutely spoil. Absolutely. Yeah, so the reason why this is such a great album for me, the, the crux of the reason why this is such a great album for me is because everything before blood sugar sex magic appeared was pure fast-paced high energy funk rock and almost everything afterwards was this much more melodic stadium rock sound blood sugar sex magic sticks perfectly across the two so it's got huge amounts of that funk rock energy still in there but it's starting to blend in a lot of this more melodic more grown-up layered beautifully musical sound that's come with it and part of that can be ascribed to rick rubin so he's the producer for this record and i think was on board for the next five or six records as well it's the first one that he'd actually produced for them and initially they didn't think it'd be right for them because they'd heard his involvement in a lot of things like i think slayer and those kind of heavy metal bands but once they'd met with him they actually really liked his approach. He he was involved in Aerosmith and Run DMC. So actually, from a musical perspective and from a creativity perspective, you can see where that match is coming from. And apparently they loved his approach of giving them space and letting them work and just bring out the best in, the, in them. Whereas previous producers had 
forced them to do things their way and particularly through Shante whose first album was the previous album Mother's Milk they pushed him to be a very rock heavy guitarist and actually that's not what he wanted necessarily yeah well it's really funny that you mentioned Aerosmith and Run DMC because and up until now I hadn't listened to their back catalogue before well I had listened to Mother's Milk but before that you've got a couple of albums um, like the Uplift Mofo Party Plan and Freaky <laughs> Styly, um, with two albums which I didn't know and if you listen to the first track on the Uplift Moto, Mofo Party Plan, which is Fight Like a Brave. It's so similar to um, the Run DMC and Aerosmith mashup. Was it Walk This Way they did? Walk This Way, like yeah. Yeah, it sounds almost identical. And But those earlier albums, they're a funny mix of almost like 80s metal and kind of almost weird glam rock and then some rap on top of it. They, they don't quite... They don't quite sound like the, the the chili peppers that we know today. No, exactly. But but yeah, you're right. It's that very heavy, aggressive funk rock sound. It's all very upbeat and very positive and happy, but Flea's very prominent in a lot of the earlier work because just that technical ability he has as a bassist. I mean, he talks about it apparently for this record. He deliberately tried to scale back and Rick Rubin was one that kind of helped him with with adjusting to that from being i think he talks about wanting to show off that he was this badass bassist that could just do all this stuff and realizing that actually maybe he shouldn't there's there's an interview there's a uh, sonic youth i think bassist who basically said i think it was sonic youth who said that um she hated this slap bass style slap bass being yeah taken to a point of machismo that it shouldn't be and the fact that she really didn't like it and he apparently read it and was like oh crap i really like her i hope she doesn't think that was me but knowing sort of that it was like him that had driven a lot of because a lot of people had heard his stuff and been like oh my god that's so cool and gone that way yeah flea's bass playing is iconic it's brilliant Mm -hmm. it's um the slap bass apparently he he stole it away he's he's taken a lot of influence from the kind of the funk music that was floating around yep. before then. I didn't know that he he played bass on um, You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. If you listen to that. I didn't know that either. That's an amazing fact. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've stumbled across this. If you listen to You Ought to Know, you can hear him and he's doing the flea bass line, but the <sighs> producer must have gone and we've just kind of toned this right down. So it's played at like half volume. Go and listen to it. That's and you so can good. Hear flea like going... <laughs> and he does it, but it's just really low volume because they're like come on you just can't overshadow Alanis when she's doing this so yeah interesting flea facts number one and that's such a quiet track yeah for him to be just like doing that on funny isn't it so oh, amazing I'm gonna have to go and have a listen I bet I forget to go and have a listen to that but when I when I listen back to this for the edit I'm gonna go and have a listen it's good but yeah so Rich go and have a listen right now <laughs> and the rest of you so this is something that's you you sort of don't expect it when you first hear it. I mean I didn't know what to expect when I first heard this, but I suspect that people who knew the Chilies before weren't necessarily expecting this. So the album opens with The Power of Equality and then follows that on with If You Have to Ask. And so it sounds like Red Hot Chili Peppers, funk rock, edgy guitars and funky flea bass lines. And with Kaidas doing all his kind of, you know, that big vocal range of spoken word, rap and sung lyrics... And then all of a sudden everything changes and you get Breaking the Girl, which is a total change of pace. And they, as far as I can tell, never done anything musically like this before. I scanned through the other albums to try and just get an idea sonically, just because I didn't have 
much time. Didn't actually didn't have much inclination to go through them and listen to them properly. And there isn't a track like "Breaking the Girl" floating around. At least I couldn't I couldn't find it. So it's, right. it has come out of nowhere. Yeah, and it's uh, it's almost Beatles ish in terms of the acoustic guitar. I can't work out which track. Okay, so if someone's listening to this and you have an idea of which Beatles track it is that this sounds like, someone suggested Norwegian Wood, and I don't think it's that, but. It's funny because I'd made a note just as I was listening through the album as as to what I thought this sounded like, and I thought it sounded Beatlesy, and other people have noted the same thing. So there's definitely something in there, and I don't know whether it's deliberate or whether it's just that's how it happens to come out when they recorded it. Yeah, well, Frusciante said that his he was inspired by um, Zeppelin's ballads, so he okay. was, so he said that Led Zeppelin were the inspiration for this one. Ah, cool. um, so it wasn't it wasn't the Beatles one, but they've got like a melatron. But then there. Led Zeppelin ripped off everyone else anyway, so they probably ripped off a Beatles song that he then precisely. Had. So yeah, um, <laughs> but it's a brilliant track. It's, it's absolutely stunning. It's so good, and the drums are sneaky good in this. So there's this tom fill that's this repeating tom fill that goes all the way through. That is just I'd never really noticed it until I went and listened really seriously to the album over the last day or two. And it's great, but it's just, you wouldn't even notice it because it's so well integrated, but it's totally different to stuff that you'd expect to be in there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great song. And then it kind of topples from that into Funky Monks, which is just, it's just got such a brilliant riff. Yeah. I'm a big fan. One thing I will say before we move on from Breaking the Girl is that three minutes in when all that crashing percussion comes in, that's actually Smith and Flea just smashing broken trash cans and pipes and all sorts of crap. They recorded these layers of of them just smashing these things in in like in tune with the rest of the percussion. Awesome. It's really cool. If you watch the uh there's a uh, a documentary, it's not really a documentary, it's sort of just clips of the band as they're doing stuff with interviews mixed in there's no narrative it's just stuff that was recorded while they were recording the uh the album but there's this clip of them doing this and it's really cool it's like holy crap that's what they were doing for this because it's again really well integrated and it just sounds like somebody smashing some percussion around but it's not it's, it's them beating up on a load of trash nice so it's just stuff out of a bin that they've just started hitting yeah that's awesome yeah, and and a broken bin as well, or American <laughs> trash. You know those big trash cans that tramps set fires in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the thing that um <laughs> that Muppet lives in. Yeah, exactly. What's his name? Oscar the Grouch. That's him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, those. So, Blood Sugar Sex Magic is the next track I really want to talk about because this this really sets the tone for the album because it's got that drum intro that that. Kuchik, kuchik. That that just is this. It's almost sneakily funky without being overly so. And then it's got this immensely sexy funk guitar opening. And then you've got Kiedis like growling the verses in your ear. There's a lyric in there: "Erotic shock is a function of lust." Like this is where it becomes really overtly sexual. And they talk about the sex and sexuality in this album and it really comes to the fore in this particular track so that track it's a bit later on the album and it's um the riff is a bit rage against the machine like you don't get that slap bass it's kind of it's quite quite noisy it's it's almost back to their old style of that that metal riff that that rage do very well yep yeah but it's again it's not 
it's not full on just funk rock. There's more to it than that. There's this melodic element of music that that's new in this album compared to everything they they've released yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, love, love that track. And then you're into the one that everyone knows, Under the Bridge. Yeah, which is another departure, isn't it, really? It's another ballad. It is, and it should never have been on the album. Really? Kiedis wrote this as a poem in his own private personal notes because he, as I mentioned, he'd been sober for a couple of years and most of the band weren't. They were still out partying. He was feeling this real distance from the rest of the band and feeling quite alone because to actually record the album, they went to Rick Rubin had this big mansion with loads of recording studio equipment set up in it, which sounds crazy and looks kind of crazy when you watch the documentary. But all of the band, bar Chad Smith, were living in the actual mansion itself chad smith because it was apparently haunted refused to stay there overnight and was doing the commute to home and back in between recording sessions but the the band themselves were staying there so you imagine you're there with a load of people who are partying taking drugs and you're not but you're an ex-addict and he felt incredibly alone and so the whole thing was written as a poem to sort of express that privately and then rick rubin i don't know how found this in his notes read it and was like sing this to me i want to hear you sing this to me and he did and he was like we have to put this on the record and apparently he was really reticent to share it with the rest of the banks he thought that they'd they'd hate it that it was too soppy and emotional that it was too slow for their their style and apparently the rest of the band were just like this is incredible. This is this is an amazing piece of music. So they ended up creating Under the Bridge and it ended up on the record. And apparently Frusciante, he didn't like the minor chord thing with it. He wanted something more positive. So the actual intro is this major chord thing that then drops into a minor chord as the song gets going. It does, yeah. That's cool. And it was a massive success. I mean, it hit yeah. the Billboard charts... I've just checked and it, it didn't make it to number one. It, really? Number one at the time was um, Jump by Criss Cross. Do you remember oh that? Oh, my God. <laughs> so that, it was trumped because of Jump. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Fucking people, eh? Uh, anyway, <laughs> it is a great song. It probably is overplayed. I, I suspect it's one of those tracks like Californication that has just been played to absolute death and people are sort of a bit maybe sick of it but I, I don't think i ever will be i just i absolutely love it to death no it's got a special place in my heart too because of the um yeah it was the first song i learned to play on a guitar so it's uh yeah it's a winner same here and actually the the basic guitar is fairly easy but if you listen to what's going on during the song it's actually sneakily complex yeah yeah there's a lot to it there's a lot of stuff going on in there and it's very cool yeah no, awesome stuff. Uh, we've got to talk. Oh, I was going to, I did a bit of research into Apache Rose Peacock, which is Kiedis's Ode to New Orleans. And I was really hoping that this would have been built around a specific person that I could then go and do a bit of research on and find out the story in the back thing to it. Apparently, it's just him observing people being insane in the city during Mardi Gras. Yeah, and it's a classic Chili Peppers track, isn't it? I mean, the cadence the bass the singing it's all pretty classic stuff lyrically there's that kind of sexual energy in there that 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 really rides through most of the album yeah it's it's a cool track i really like it it's it's a good one but 
I don't think I have much more to say. I'm going to jump to Sir Psycho Sexy. Ah, I'm glad you're going to mention it. There are 17 tracks on this album. It's a, it's a big old album. And if, if I had one complaint with it, that's just there's there's too much on there. But this one song is an absolute stone cold belter. I think this album may have set my expectations too high in terms of how long an album should be because it's 70 plus minutes which is ridiculous no album needs to be 70 minutes long but it set my expectations as a teenager that unless something was like 60 minutes plus i wasn't getting my money's worth yeah 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 exactly and um a lot of the tracks on this album are quite long as well they're like four minute tracks it's not like you're getting yeah. two and a half minutes and then they, they stop other than this track which is eight minutes plus which is huge but it really deserves it as well it's not just the same thing repeated and repeated it, it goes on a proper journey so it starts with this absolutely sexy as fuck intro with that cool funk bass thing and that first verse is very sexual very in your face the lyrics in there are, are insanely explicit it's got that kind of macho strutting thing that they they do so very well as a band. Yep. But then it moves into this ballad-like bridge, which is really, really pretty and beautiful, and then drops back into more of the kind of strutting funk with him talking about basically getting pulled over by a lady cop and then having sex with her and her being the initiator but also him being very into it like you assume that it's like some kind of fantasy although Kedis is such a ladies man that you sort of can imagine that he might have had an encounter like <laughs> yeah. this that he's leaning on and then it drops back in it kind of falls headlong into this beautiful epic melodic guitar and strings don't know whether it's synth strings, but strings finale that just kind of winds its way through to the end of the track. It's, it is one of my all-time favourite songs, I think, not just the Chili Peppers, but overall. Yeah, it's another one of those long tracks where, where we mentioned we should compile that list of like really long tracks. This is another one that you can just, you can play for the whole eight minutes and it's a great, oh, great piece of music. I just, it's just stunning. It's just an incredible, incredible piece of music. And it's one of those tracks that makes me love music as a whole and was one of those things that inspired me to want to try and learn to play music and to write music. Obviously, I've never got to that level in, in my life, but it was something that as a teenager, this was a very inspiring piece of music towards that. Yeah, and the album as a whole in terms of inspiration. Yeah. There weren't many bands like that floating around at the time, and I think for a lot of people, they were... That they just went right up on that plinth of, of being different. And they tried, they, they almost like cherry picked the best bits of a lot of the music at the time. That kind of the the rap that was coming out of the 80s, mm -hmm. the kind of bass lines and metal riffs that were being used so much in kind of the 80s, like bigger, noisier stadium rock. And they kind of stole all of those bits and just mashed it together. Frusciante, he's apparently a very smart guy and was studying a lot of music and a lot of musical theory and a lot of other bands and and just demolishing all of this and that's part of where the the new sound came from i guess because the first album that he was a part of came out very quickly after he and uh, chad smith had joined the group and so this feels they say in interviews they felt that this was really where they'd become a band and they'd got that kinship of touring together and much felt much more like 
themselves. And so Frusciante coming in and, and really having an inf- more of an influence, and I almost feel like they almost kept that influence for following albums where it's been these bigger stadium rock sounds that I don't dislike, but I, they don't appeal as much as this. It almost feels like this is this is the peak of their career and everything before it was a build-up to it and everything after it was almost trying to recapture that magic but never quite being able to get there. And don't get me wrong, there's some great stuff later on, but not an yeah. album that feels as complete and brilliant as this. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you look at Californication and you look at the track listing on there and the number of hits that have come out of that, like Around the World, Parallel Universe, Scar Tissue. I mean, I'm literally reading through the track (laughs) listing of like Other Sides Next. It just, there's just so many well-known tracks off there, but I do get it. Nothing excites me. Out of all of those that you've just read out, nothing excites me out of that list as much as anything on Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's funny, isn't it? Even even in One Hot Minute, the album that was after mm-hmm. Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Aeroplane's in there, which is good fun, but yep. it's I think they just they just peaked then. Yeah, absolutely. One track that I realised that I haven't mentioned that I do love and sort of really gives a great example of Flea maturing as a bass player is Give It Away. Oh, because everyone yes. thinks of it as this kind of crazy like bass driven song and it actually came out apparently they wrote it in about 15 minutes it came out of flea playing a bass riff and then kiedis started just started improvising lyrics over the top of it hence this sort of give it away give it away give it away like just just you know the kind of stuff that you could imagine a lyricist just making up words because he wants to see what sounds fit rather than what words fit necessarily but if you actually go and listen to the bass line as it kind of winds through give it away it's very minimal I heard that he was just pissing around and they and they and I think they started laughing because it was so bonkers. If you listen to it, he's going all the way up and down the fretboard and I think it was almost a piss take and they probably started just jamming off the back of that. Right. It's an amazing song though. It's brilliant. It is great. And, and it's almost that intro bass is fantastic and you feel like it sets the tone for everything in terms of the tempo and the way that Keyless is keying off it. But his baseline is never overly aggressive it's never overly fussy and it works brilliantly with everything else in the song you don't often hear baselines which kind of it's almost like he's kind of bending up the whole the whole octave he's like but you can hear all this movement in it it's it's a wonderful wonderful song and if you're learning to play bass get that nailed because it's a great piece of music i've got one more song fact that i found out during research for you could have lied was apparently written well i say apparently kayla says this in interviews was written about sinead o'connor apparently he and she had a a relationship now i'm saying that in a human relationship way they never dated dated but they spent night times driving around LA listening to music and talking and I think Kiedis felt like it was a romantic entanglement and she didn't feel the same way about it Interesting. and she apparently just left him a note saying have moved back to England one day and he just found this note was devastated and this was him and Frusciante wrote the song as like a kind of oh shit I fucked up I could have lied, should have lied, I'm such a fool, blah, blah, blah. Oh, uh, wow. About the honesty of the relationship. Well, apparently she was like, we never we never had a relationship. We never dated. She saw it as this 
LA friendship. Yeah. He clearly had much deeper emotional engagement, which I feel like I might feel a bit sad for him in that that suggests that most of his relationships have been pretty shallow. Yeah, I, I, I've read that he's kind of, he says he's done brilliantly in terms of jumping into bed with loads of girls, but beyond that, he hasn't had as much luck. Yeah. Just in terms of the real emotional investment. Yeah, and that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, you'd get the impression that he's he's definitely one of these guys that has huge amounts of charisma. I hear that about their live shows. I am sad to say I've never seen them live, which is obviously where we're going next with <laughs> with the podcast episode. I am annoyed that I think my dad has seen them live because, he, <laughs> awesome. because they've recorded it bbc on a couple of occasions and he i mean my dad worked at the bbc for like 30 35 years something like that a lot long enough to have seen pretty much anyone that's performed there at some point but yeah i i've never seen them live i think they were one of those bands that early thousands mid thousands late thousands i was keen to see them but probably didn't have the money for their stadium gigs and so would have had to see them at a festival and they just never played a festival that I went to and I think now I'd almost feel like do they have the energy I saw the Stones at Isle of Wight Festival in 2007 I think and it just felt like they were they were very competent and the music was great but you didn't have the energy and I worry that if I saw them now they'd only play like three tracks from this album and yeah. they'd almost be like playing the hits yeah they, i'm sure they would and a lot of people would love that and, and to be fair I, if it was an all hits chili peppers gig i'd totally go and see it it'd be great but i think you're right i think it would be uh i don't know you, you really wanted to see them back in yep. the 90s when they were at their at their peak yeah well i was 10 when this came out <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true so but, unlikely to see them at their peak unfortunately there are other ways to see them though a couple of my my chili peppers facts like stuff i didn't know any of this stuff before what yesterday so <laughs> before the, our research so the chili peppers film stars obviously so kiodis appeared in point break he was uh, one of the surfers so alongside yep. keanu i didn't know keanu reeves and and all that stuff but the totally totally better facts so flea is in some movies as well yeah. So you know when we were talking about Amy Mann the other day, mm-hmm. um, we were talking about the, the Big Lebowski, and Amy Mann was the one sitting on the table with the Germans with her toe missing. Two seats to the left of her is Flea. <laughs> Flea is one of the German guys in the Big Lebowski and doing all that acting stuff. How awesome is that? Well, I knew that he'd been in some films. I didn't know again. Apparently, we are the Big Lebowski podcast. If we're not talking yeah. about music. It's that that film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That film. It's nothing film. else. That's it. But apparently, his link to getting into film is Gus Van Sant who apparently cast him in one ah. of his movies in in the mid 90s really yeah he was in Back to the Future 2 and 3 as well really yeah you see him he's one of the um, he's got like a little walk on part so Flea is all over the place I love that I mean I sort of still think of the Beavis and Butthead movie as the Red Hot Chili Peppers movie because it, it could easily be those guys <laughs> doing those wacky crazy things I yeah. mean these are guys who like playing in their wife fronts at live gigs, sometimes naked. They they don't like clothes. No, put it that way. Well, they're just um, yeah, they're they're a special bunch, aren't they? Yeah, they're all a bit all a bit mad, but I think you have to be a bit different to be able to produce music that that is this kind of stuff. Well, if you look at where they've come from as well, I mean, they've been down and out, drugs, all sorts, chaos, yeah, breakups, and so you're not going to be a nine to five desk job guy, right? 
yeah, you've already had two band members, one one who's died, one who's left because the other one died, and they're they're childhood friends as well. Like it's not just these are guys that you you know you formed a band with in your mid twenties or something. They talked about the fact that Slovak and Cadis were neck and neck as to who would pop it first because they were both so heavily into their heroin addiction that it just was going to go that way for one of them. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty pretty brutal. What about right up to date? I mean, there was, what, 2016? They released an album, The Getaway. Have you heard that? Nope. Nope. Not interested? <laughs> uh, no, I'll go and have a listen. I didn't before the start of this because I, I really wanted to focus on the one album. I knew that we discussed this before the podcast. There's so much to talk about with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. There's hundreds and hundreds of fascinating things that we haven't even touched on that we found in our research and that will be out there that we didn't even touch on in our research. And so I got to the point where I really wanted to just focus on the album, what I love about this album. But yeah, I think I think I should get in there and have a bit of a listen and see what I think I will definitely go in with zero expectations of loving it but maybe that'll help I was blown away actually by the amount of material there is on the internet about them and it kind of made me kind of think oh shit we're way way out of our depth (laughs) in terms of doing a podcast about this a a 45 minute podcast just scrapes the surface of of the information that's out there about them it's absolutely bonkers and we're scraping the amount of information on this one album. Yeah. There's going to be whole loads of other stories. And I think partly because of the fact that they're they're quite a heart-on-the-sleeve type band. Like, they will just say stuff. You go and watch the 60-minute documentary on... It's called Funky Monks. It's it's available through certain streaming platforms <laughs> readily. Uh, I don't know how copyright-friendly that is, but that's not our problem. That in itself there's some incredible very very frank comments and and moments of interviews with the band where they're just chatting to i think it's one of the band's brother-in-laws or or something like that that was doing the filming so maybe they say things that they wouldn't necessarily say if it was some random doing it but it's yeah it's sort of fascinating and it, it feels like they're the kind of band that don't shy away from just like living their lives regardless of being massively in the media spotlight yeah they're just a special bunch aren't they really (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and god bless them for being a special bunch yeah i mean like i said at the start this was an album that really was very much a brand new sound for me i'd never really heard anything quite like this and so brought me into listening to all, all sorts of things that don't know i'd have got into otherwise i mean you've mentioned a couple of bands some of that harder rock almost funk rock like rage against the machine bands like that that just yeah i would never have probably heard much of if i just continued listening to you know capital fm which is basically what i listened to in in my (laughs) early years of my teens ironically right now that kind of a radio station would play Chili Peppers all the time. Like if you go and listen to, I don't know, pick one, Heart FM. Yeah. I bet you they'll they'll play Chili Pepper songs all the time. So they've almost yep. kind of looped right round, straight back into about as mainstream as you can get. And you've brought us right back to the point of the start of the podcast. Are they cool anymore? Uh, yes. You still think they're cool? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're the chili Fair peppers. You cut, they're, they're cool. <laughs> but. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I like I said at the start, I think this album is very cool, and I think they themselves are very cool. I don't know that the more recent music would necessarily... I think a lot of hipsters would sneer at it. Sneer away. Because of sneer its popularity, away. maybe? Go for it. Don't give a shit. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. Good for you. I like that attitude. Cool. Well, I think that will probably do us. I don't know quite how long we've been talking, but it's been a while. So I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest we leave it there. You can, as always, find us at I Might Be Wrong UK. I'm gonna plug briefly another podcast that I've started working on. It's a couple of performer friends that i know from london called gin salt it's very funny if you like irreverent stuff things that you've never heard of things in the performing world that you've always wondered but don't know anything about it's it's very funny i spend literally every recording i have been crying with laughter falling out of my seat because they are very very funny together so go and have a listen to them cool absolutely all right you got anything you want to plug um no, social media and me aren't very good together, so no. No, you don't even like our posts, which <laughs> yeah. isn't helpful for our... Uh... Well, my, my, my Facebook wall is basically one giant podcast. It's just one big billboard for that because I don't put anything else on there, so... <laughs> That's the problem. You're just not on Facebook, yeah. so no one interacts or expects to interact with you there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an analog boy in a digital world. What can I say? What we need to do is we need to get you a big cape that sort of floats out behind you while you're riding your mountain bike with I might be wrong UK on it. Holy shit. Advertise that way. Or like a kite, like a string <laughs> up to a kite. I could just, yeah. I could just drag it across the sky. Mini blimp. Wow. Mini blimp. That's what mini we need. Mini blimp. There we go. I'll look, into, go. I'll look into how much it will cost to get us a mini blimp. I suspect it might be cost prohibitive given that we make zero money out of this. Um, yeah, that's a shame. That, that's us for, <laughs> that is us for this week. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs> spiraling into the ground thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong